The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. So whenever I do these interviews, people are like, oh, you know, I'm sure you've been like with patients all day. I'm sure you've been flying all day. I haven't really touched the controls of an aircraft in years and I haven't touched a patient in years either. That's not what I do anymore. Business is about running the business. It's about leadership. It's about managing people. It's about more HR, marketing. So that's more of my day-to-day job now. What is your number one growth metric? Ooh, money. Is that <laughs> profits. 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 Yeah, so I've been talking about it since business, like real business must return profit for shareholders. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. My guest today is Olamide Brown. She is impressive in every way. Ola graduated from Hall York Medical School at the age of 21, becoming one of the youngest medical doctors in the United Kingdom. That's pretty impressive. A few years after, she learned how to fly and she became a flying doctor. Uh, Today, I've got Olamide Brown on the show. We'll be talking about her story, her mission, her vision, and we'll talk a lot about Flying Doctors Nigeria, which is a medical emergency service that specializes in air ambulances. I think that's the only one I know in Nigeria, in a country where the medical infrastructure is weak. Most people are not even thinking about medical ambulances. Alameda took the step to build that and to not just become a doctor, but a pilot, which is the dream of many people. So she had those two in one. So today, I've got Alameda Brown to talk about the future. Hola, welcome to Building the Future. Thank you. So let's start with your story. You grew up in England. Yeah. And uh, you became a medical doctor at a very young age. Yes. What inspired you to do that? Uh, because I know part of your story that you grew up in a foster home. And my thinking is that some people become doctors because their parents are doctors. They grew up in that medical environment or they are so inspired by it things like that when they were very young what actually inspired you at that stage I'm not sure that there was much inspiration behind it to be honest in terms of studying medicine I had a younger sister who had sickle cell so I was in and out of hospitals a lot so I guess every time we went into hospital my sister was coming out better so it made me idolize doctors and medicine in a way and I guess that was the thinking behind me wanting to study medicine. I actually graduated from medical school at 22, not 21. So I was sort of one of the youngest people in my year. So when I started university, actually, I can remember that uh, one of the funniest thing was that I couldn't get into any of the events for the freshers week because a lot of them were above 18. <laughs> so I, could, I wasn't the legal age, but so I was quite young. But again, I'm not sure that that is a good indicator of sort of commercial success in a business. 
So I, I'm not sure what the relationship is between academic excellence and business excellence. Probably, but think, probably very little. Yeah, but I think starting <laughs> early and achieving that kind of qualification at a very early age gives one a head start. To be able to make mistakes and learn a lot and be able to, for example, you became a doctor at a very young age, you practiced nursing, and then you became a pilot and you started flying doctors in Nigeria. I think there might be a bit of correlation there because of that early start. So imagine if you finish at 30 and you want to now reinvent your career at that age. It's very hard to be able to change and switch. So sometimes people make that correlation between a young PhD at 21 to success because of that early start do you think so no i really think that sort of our society has become quite ageist and i think that there's never a better time to reinvent yourself than now um i was watching that mcdonald's movie i don't know if you you've seen it it's called the founder and i was actually i have quite a lot more respect for ray Kroc at like the age of 55 deciding to start mcdonald's and i have for like a 21 year old with nothing to lose no family no nothing starting a business i mean i think it's incredible and i think that you can do incredible things at any age and the respect that we give to sort of young achievers is i think it's a bit overblown to be honest and i don't think it's necessarily youth i don't think the correlation was achieving academic excellence at a young age, I think it was actually, in terms of my business, I had to generate revenue at quite a young age, which I think probably contributed more to my business acumen than graduating. At what age? So when I started medical school, I had to try and fund my education and make contributions. And in England, that can be quite expensive. So I had to get a part-time job. So I learned about money really early. And then also I had to, even on the side of that part-time job, sell things on eBay and like have my eBay shop going, my business um, throughout medical school. And that was how I was able to fund it. So I think a lot of people say that having a working class background is kind of a disadvantage when going into business. And I guess in some ways, in terms of your parents' ability to introduce you to people, your parents' mentality, of course, is different. So somebody, I guess parents that are rich, you know, can call anybody to help. They can offer startup capital. But I think that there's also value in poverty somehow. (laughs) Uh, Not um, abject poverty where people can't eat, but a certain degree of poverty where you have to, you know, through university, people that have worked through university, people that have had to get jobs early are generally a lot more commercially minded than people that haven't. So I may not have had the advantages of my dad being able to call, you know, 10 billionaires to come and start start my business. I may not have had the type of advice that richer people had, but I had to develop, you know, some kind of commercial sense very early on. I had to budget much earlier on. I had to like scrape together money very early on and I had to sacrifice. So, I mean, in medicine, as you probably know from going to school in England. Medicine is quite a middle-class course. So a lot of my course mates had money to do things that I hadn't. So I get what you're saying about the fact that you were able to learn how to make money from a very young age. Uh, But lots of people that were in the same category as you uh, in England who grew up in the working class, who didn't have a lot of money, but didn't see, and they didn't know that they have to make money, but didn't see that connection between them having to work hard and be aspirational beyond their class uh, compared to you. I know you're you're modest, but I think there is something in there that 
made you to actually shoot beyond what is around you. I don't know where you grew up in England, but shoot beyond what's around you and aspire bigger. And I think that has been a trend, even not just for you going to medical school, but also learning how to fly. Don't you think so? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, again, sort of my understanding is different. I think some people want to start companies and that's a great aspiration. Some people, I really, I mean, um, I'm from Lowestoft. Um, I grew up in Lowestoft. It's a small town and a lot of people in Lowestoft just don't want to start companies. They want to stay in Lowestoft, live in Lowestoft, maybe travel to London once every three or four years. And they're really, really happy. So I don't think that I've thought bigger than them in any way, shape or form. I don't think that I've done better than them. I just think that they've made choices that suit their life aspirations and I've made choices that suit my life aspirations. But it's very difficult for me to think that, like my friend that I went to school with who decided to stay in low stuff and work for the local hairdressers at £10 per hour, I don't feel that I'm doing better than her because I think that that's what she wanted and she's perfectly happy with that. But it was different from what I wanted so we've both chosen very different paths in life. But definitely when I go back to Lois stuff, she's still my friend and I don't feel in any way superior to her. I don't feel that I've done better than her. I don't think that I've thought bigger than her. I just think that, you know, she's happy. I'm happy that she's happy. And I don't feel in any way different. Like we're, we still gist, like we're back at primary school, <laughs> the same way that we used to gist there, which is just that person and lots of other people that I grew up with just made different choices, but they made choices that would satisfy them and sort of give them a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. I'm going to go deep into your background and how that connects to what you're doing now, because that's what this is about. But I'm tempted to still pick on some things there. Okay. So um, I understand uh, a path to fulfillment and happiness is different for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody can be a receptionist all their life, and that's what gives them the fulfillment and joy, to be able to welcome people. I understand that. But there's a bit of a difference in that from people thinking big. I don't think you're doing better. So better is a strong word. But bigger is, I think... Ability to think bigger beyond a particular realm, beyond your particular space, and think, okay, I can make more impact by doing X, Y, and Z. Doesn't necessarily make you better than somebody who is not thinking bigger than that way. So, for example, I'm not sure if uh, I'm trying to look at comparison here. Maybe Mandela and what he did and achieved might not make him better than somebody else who didn't make that kind of achievement, but it's bigger in, in, in the impact that he made. So I think there's a bit of scale in dreams. It doesn't necessarily reflect, uh, and I don't think there's a big correlation between that scale and fulfillment and happiness. Some of the people that, that are successful in code, no matter what you, your measurement of success, maybe in money or influence or power, are not necessarily the most happiest people on earth. So there's no, that, it's not, there's no correlation between that. But bigger is, I think you dream bigger. And I know you, you still want to relate to your friends and, and be able to think that you're not better than them. But I agree, but I think you thought bigger than lower school. I think that I just thought differently. Um, I really, impact was something important to me. Um, Being able to live a life where I impacted a lot of lives was important to me. And I didn't know, obviously, throughout university, I was continually thinking of this idea of impact and how I'd be able to sort of, in any way that I could use my professional background to help people. Um, and help a large number of people. And that was sort of where I believe that I would find my fulfillment, which I have. So let's talk about when you left the medical school and you started working for NHS. Mm -hmm. Um, What was your path for you then? So you 
Oh, um, I had to do that. So it was my foundation year. So you have to do that to get registered as a doctor. So I've actually never had a job before. When I was working for the NHS, I was working in training. Um, but I knew that that wasn't really my future quite early on. I mean, I started my training. Um, it was great. I was so enthusiastic. I was always trying to publish and take different courses and just try and, you know, pump up the training <laughs> that I was doing with different external things. But it became apparent to me that that wasn't the career path that I wanted to follow. So I decided to apply, take some time out. So I did. I applied for a scholarship in Japan. I just wanted to do something extra different. And while I was living in Tokyo, most of the other English speakers were either expats working in investment banking or entrepreneurs that started their own companies. So I became very interested in the idea of entrepreneurship. I had been thinking about this air ambulance idea for a long time um, because early on in medical school, my sister had actually died because we couldn't find an air ambulance in Nigeria. So that had always been on my mind. I had taken a few flying lessons. I really enjoyed flying. And I started taking the flying lessons after I had kind of gotten the skeletal idea of starting an air ambulance. So for me, it was quite an easy progression, I guess, so to go you, into business. Did you start learning how to fly in Tokyo? No, 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 in England in during England. my uh, first training year. And, and it's, it was an hobby initially, but you were thinking about starting it, It's still a hobby. I mean, no technical skill for me has been as useful in business as my commercial skills. So whenever I do these interviews, people are like, oh, you know, that I'm sure you've been like with patients all day. I'm sure you've been flying all day. I haven't really touched the controls of an aircraft in years and I haven't touched a patient in years either. That's not what I do anymore. Business is about running the business. It's about leadership. It's about managing people. It's about more HR marketing. So that's more of my day-to-day -day job now. And obviously I've employed people with those technical skills to do the flying and the medicine. We're going to get into that business aspect of the flying skill, but I just want to deep dive into how it began. A lot of entrepreneurs start their business because of some personal connections. Absolutely. Uh, or deep pain that they want to solve for themselves. You had a tragedy uh, in your life. Your, your sister died because there was no medical facility to take her to the right place from Nigeria. And you tried as much as possible in Ghana and, Nigeria, and the nearest one was South Africa, which was about five hours away. Um, how deeply impactful was that for you? And, and more than that, how did you connect that to say, okay, this, this is a problem that my sister faced and end up dying and I think I might one day want to solve that problem. My sister was one of over a billion people across the world that die because they can't get to see a doctor in time, the right kind of doctor on time. And I think that logistics is probably one of the greatest problems in healthcare. People, millions of people die because they're simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's a global problem that I felt that I could start solving in Nigeria. So you connected that when it happened? Oh, um, not as soon as it happened. I mean, I, I came up with quite a few different ideas um, and obviously deciding what the model was going to be, whether it was going to be a, a not-for-profit model or a profit model. But those were the things that I was like thinking about and the ideas that I was developing over a period of years as I completed my medical education. So let's, let's go to the business aspect of it. It's very interesting to say a flying doctor. And I think that is why a lot of people will ask you, oh, 
oh, you're flying, you're a doctor. You, mm-hmm. A lot of people we have the picture of you in your white overall and, <laughs> and a captain's art on and you're flying and you're taking care of the patient in the aircraft as well, which is not the business, right? It's like aircraft flipping burger. It's more than that. It's not managing. Oh, Dan Gute, like in the factory, like putting yes. the ingredients for the cement together. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So, but but it's a connection between you understanding the basics of it. You, because the business could have been started by somebody who is neither a doctor, of course, nor, nor a pilot. But you understand the basics of it. There is a personal connection that you're trying to solve a problem. So it's, it's more than just a, a business to make money. You started. Like, I want to solve a problem, and then let's look for the business model to make it sustainable over time. So let's start with how you started, because it's not an easy business to start. Absolutely. It's, High capex. Mm-hmm. It's not like me starting a startup. I just need to get some people to write a code and validate it within a few days. Mm-hmm. You are to look for money. You are to get some license. You are to go through regulatory framework. Mm-hmm. And you are to hire people that are not cheap. Mm-hmm. How did that start? So I moved to Nigeria with no idea how I was going to start. And with just my medical knowledge. So... I think it's one thing having an MBA and having all the connections from some Ivy League university and coming to Nigeria and starting a business. And it's another thing just being a doctor, not knowing much about anything and trying to start a business. But I had an uncle who was able to give me some letters to meet various people, people that I could ask to be on my board, etc. I met all of those people, but none of them actually could define a business model for me because they couldn't so, understand it right it's not something they can relate to absolutely why not start an hospital mm-hmm. which is easy we can understand that mm-hmm. flying doctor how many people are flying how many people really need this and how do they pay for it so that i can understand where they're coming from so i knew that i needed some advice from the nigerian civil aviation authority that was like somewhere that i needed to go to understand the regulatory framework so I managed to get somebody to introduce me to the son of the DG, which was like a huge achievement for me. But after waiting for him for four hours in VI. You're waiting for the son of the DG? Yeah, the son. Four, not, son. Not the DG, the no. son. Because he thought it was like such a waste of his time. Like some small girl saying she wants to start their ambulance. And as soon as we managed to meet up, he said it was like a really terrible idea and it wouldn't work in Nigeria. And he gave me loads of reasons why. So I went home kind of deflated. How old were you then? I was either in my early 20s. You were in your early 20s, carrying some papers with a big dream and talking to people that I want to start a flying school. They look at you. <laughs> what is she thinking? He thought he's, he's actually my really, really good friend now. But at the time, I'm sure, like, I can't even imagine, like, the, the same way that I see people coming with a sheet of papers and I think these people don't know what they're talking about at all. That was the scenario. So I didn't, I didn't get uh, the help from him, but so I concocted a plan just to go to the guy's office and just go and sit down there every day until I was able to see the him. DG or the yeah, the DG. So, so you went to the DG's <laughs> office, sat there and said, you don't have an appointment. No. And I you just went to reception and said, I want to see the DG of Nigerian Civil Aviation. Yeah. And I said, you don't want, you're not on the paper, so I'm going to sit here until you answer me. So I sat there for about three days. Three days from... Go- going home, yeah, well, going home in the evening. And then eventually I was able to meet with him. And he told me the same thing, actually, that it's really difficult and... Okay, wait, pause. Three days you're sitting there and he will come in and out and he will see you. And it's receptionist say, this girl has been waiting here for two days or thereabout. And then what did he do next? Did he say, okay, let me just have pity on him. 
exactly and i think that that was like really really nice of him (laughs) because it was like this strange girl in one very cheap looking suit that i probably bought for like 10 pounds i managed to concoct together looking very strange um so eventually (laughs) he just called me in because he was probably tired of seeing my face and he basically said the same thing that it's just a really difficult business super capital intensive and you know it's probably not going to work but he did introduce me to somebody else that I was to speak to so I went met up with him and he referred me to somebody else I gave him my number but he referred me to somebody else and said that he's actually leaving um so he wouldn't be the right person to speak to so after that he caught somebody else in the civil age yeah so you know I was just working my way through and a few months later the guy that was leaving called me and said that he's working for another company now and they have one old plane that the owner is looking to sell but maybe in the meantime we could talk about having a leasing agreement so I was able to get a leasing agreement from him and then get guarantees from companies that would pay the lease on a retainer basis and that was how I started the company. Okay let's let's break that down. When people are saying this cannot work what was the major obstacle? Was it money to start it or was it the regulatory framework or a lot of combination of things which you can tell us about? I think the same things why people say businesses are not going to work in general. Capital, the type of person behind it. Looking back at myself, I would have probably told my younger self that it was not going to work because it it was bizarre. A very male-dominated business, a very highly regulated business. Like, the things that I would have told myself is you need more business acumen as well. You can't just go into this business. What do you know about HR? What do you know about marketing? What do you know about finance? What do you know about accounting? Like, do you... like rudimentary. I mean, you can learn that. But what do you know about running an airline? And what do you know about running an hospital? You're doing both at the same time. What do you know about management? How do you manage people? How do you recruit? Those are things that I had no idea about. So it was a very sort of well looking back I I mean when I was in the situation I thought it was perfectly plausible but looking back it was perfectly implausible where were you hoping to get your money from I wasn't thinking about that interesting you were not thinking about the money to get a flight to pay people no not particularly Uh, and we'll talk about that a bit later but I realized that it was a service that people needed especially big companies and if I could get a lease agreement from an aircraft owner, then definitely I could go to the companies and get some agreements to pay the lease. So I knew that I could do it with no cash down. But it was the difficulty in terms of getting those agreements, I guess, together and sort of convincing people that I could do it who didn't believe in me at all. Right now, looking back, I can see why they didn't believe in me. And obviously it's quite an unusual, (laughs) unusual situation. And I think that maybe at that time, having an MBA, having a bit more business knowledge would have helped, but not necessarily, because sometimes they put you into a... A straight jacket. Yeah, a straight jacket, a very rigid way of thinking. So the typical entrepreneur out of business school would say, okay, the first thing to do is go and approach some venture capitalists and raise a lot of money. They don't think about perhaps building or bootstrapping as much as people that don't know anything about business and don't even have the relationships to approach a VC anyway. So I think sometimes a lot of businesses, because I now am part of Green Tree Investment and we invest in um, 
companies all over Africa. And one of the issues that I see in businesses now, especially from people that actually know about business, is it's all about the raise. And it's about raising more and more capital and using that money to figure out what you're doing. And it's sort of like a post-profit mindset where, you know, the profitability of the business comes secondary. Uh, Shareholder return is secondary. It's the amazingness of what they're doing that is the primary thing. And I think that business, like real business, must return profit for shareholders. And it must do so as early as possible. And with a rudimentary knowledge of business, just from selling shoes and selling the small things that I've been doing, that was always top of mind for me. This thing has to make money in this first year because otherwise I have no way out. It's not as if I had, you know, funders coming to come and meet me to to give me money. So profitability was always top of mind for me. And that's helped me through my entrepreneurial journey and also helped me sort of advise other female entrepreneurs especially because a lot of women feel that they need to be doing something charitable and I think it's a lot more difficult for women to talk about money because you know when you talk about money you always somehow look greedy so one of the things that I say when I'm speaking to um, other especially women entrepreneurs is profit profit is good you know having a profitable company is a good thing wanting to make money is a good thing if you know you're not making money and you're continually making losses, then no matter how beautiful your product is, you don't have a business. Yeah, and it's not sustainable. And it's not sustainable, Although there, yeah. There's a lot of things to unpack from what you said about uh, the relationship to, between profit and growth businesses, and especially how people mix up tech-enabled startups that need to grow really fast and might need a lot of money, and they mix that up with some other businesses that you actually don't need that kind of money, you just need to focus on profitability. There's so many things to unpack there. But I want to go back to the business model for your own business when you started. So from the outside, I would have thought that, oh, you need a lot of money to buy the aircraft, to get a lease. And you said, actually, that's not money is not the initial stuff, it's getting the agreement. I want to understand the business model in terms of how you expect the money to come and to be able to pay the lease. Was there a pent-up demand for air ambulances? Oh, yes. Yeah, so from all the international oil companies, for a lot of the international companies that employ expats, they all wanted an air ambulance. So getting retainership agreements with companies wasn't a problem. There was a huge demand. So it's not that, oh, you just book an ambulance now. We do have ad hoc services. So some of our services is just somebody in an emergency, but we're supported by retainer clients. So the way it works majorly, uh, where you get most of the revenue from is Shell, Mobile, they have some staff there and they want to be on a retainer with you to say... "Mm." Most Well, most of our income is from paying clients. We have different sources of income, but most of it is from clients that pay us regularly, yes. And so that's the way it works. So you then retain your aircraft as well uh, and mm. lease permanently. So where do you take people to? You take them from Nigeria to, to the UK or you take them within Nigeria? So about it's about 50-50 right now. 50% of our business is regional. That can be anywhere within the region. It can be from... Congo to Abidjan, it can be from Burkina Faso to Sao Tome, it can be from Gabon to uh, Sierra Leone. About 50% is within the Western Central African region and then about 50% international. So that is from West Africa or Central Africa to Europe or South Africa or Asia. And this would be uh, people moving from one place to another place where there's better medical facility for them. 
or people traveling and they got sick in Nigeria and they want to go to Ivory Coast? It can be anything. So people don't, I see patients, air ambulance patients, more like, or the air ambulance business, more like the human version of DHL. People need to move for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes they're insured, they want to go back home. Sometimes it's family members, sometimes it's injuries that can't be treated in a certain place. All sorts of reasons why people require air ambulance. And we're the transport company, just like the DHL for sick human beings. So I'm trying to figure out, is this a factor of a lack of medical facility in Africa compared to in the UK? Maybe I'm not close to this enough, whether there's a lot of air ambulance in the UK. There's 39 air ambulances in the UK. So they do A&E a lot, right? So when there's an accident on M4 and they need to take somebody to BR in Bristol, so they start uh, St. John Ambulance that will pick somebody from that place. There's 39 air ambulance services in total in, in England, and I think they do several hundred thousand air ambulance transfers every year. The concept of air ambulances is the same almost all over the world, and it's to get somebody from an area where they've overwhelmed the level of care mainly to a more suitable level of care for them. So let's talk about the pricing for this. And mm-hmm. So for the adult, how expensive? Because it sounds very expensive. It is very expensive. So, so, so uh, can you give some idea of the pricing for this? It really depends on the patient because we have so many ways to transfer. We have a system that fits into commercial flights for certain kinds of patients that takes up a few of the seats on the commercial flight that can be used for transfer. And then we have our plane as well. So it just depends on, I can't say specific prices because it's too variable depending on the type of patient, where they're going, uh, how sick they are etc who's paying uh, how many patients there are how many people have been injured it's a very very variable but it's definitely air ambulances are not they're not cheap and in a lot of time the insurance pay or not necessarily insurance the institution be it the military institution the ngo the un whichever institution that the person works for or is associated with as well as insurance so how many planes are in your fleet now and are they mostly leased or you own some of those planes I would never want to own a plane. <laughs> because it's more expensive to, to No, not because it's more expensive, but because it limits the scale that we can reach. We lease all of our aircrafts. So these aircraft are specially made to be air ambulances. Yeah. So and specially yeah. adapted. So it's interesting the airline industry, right? So mm-hmm. how that lease agreement works, even with airlines as well. So that's some company their business model is to buy planes and to maintain them and to lease them out to mm-hmm. to, to people like you. And I wonder why it is cheaper for you to lease a plane and, and for them as well, whether that, that business model works. I mean, a lot, even British Airways uses leased planes. A lot of the big airlines use leased, uh, a mix of leased and bought planes. I think maybe it's outside the scope of this interview to start going into sort of the pricing mechanics of the airline industry and the margins, etc. But the business model works for you. Sorry? The business model and the revenue model works for you because what I heard a lot about the airline industry is that the margin is so thin. The margins are thin for airlines. They're better for air ambulance services than the airlines, definitely. But of course, we have less volume. We're not operating, you know, 70 flights a day. So we have larger margins, um, but lower volume than most airlines, even though like there are a lot of smaller airlines that we probably do the same number of flights in a day as. So let's talk about when you cross that barrier of people saying this cannot happen and then you managed to get the lease you managed to go on what happened next and how did you get to that first um, and what is that first this is real 
this is happening. Is that a false flight, the false patient, or when the false leads came and it was, and that's the logo of your company there. When, when was the first time that you had that? Wow, I got this. This is real. And my personality is a bit odd because I didn't really celebrate much. I don't think I've ever felt that wow factor, or, you know, that Ola, you're amazing, you're doing great. Because I feel that there's always so much more to do. And with investing, I was growing from a successful business person to becoming a successful investor. I still see that there's so much to do that I don't have that habit of stopping to celebrate and think, wow, you know, because I th- I always see what's in front of me. And I think there's so much to be done, both in the air ambulance industry in Western Central Africa and across Africa, and also sort of in the investing space and giving other people the opportunity to start businesses as well. I think where well. I'm going is, is the milestone. So your journey when you, you started. I didn't, I didn't really think about any milestones. So, so did you, at what plane did you lease for us? So is it one plane? or One. One. And then immediately you started getting or Yeah. And then you took your force. Were you in that plane when you took that the first no. vision? So it was just done. You got a pilot and did it. I said, now we're in business. And did you get people to invest in your business at that point as well? No. So you own most of your business now. Yeah. So you started a very high capex business mm-hmm. with no money of your own initially. Mm-hmm. And you managed to put a lot of things together and mm-hmm. you still own most of it. Yeah. That's a big feat. I know you don't want to see this much, but the, the reason behind me teasing this out is just to be able to inspire some people out there. And now you might think, oh yeah, cross that. There are more things to do. Yes, but there's so many things for us to celebrate and talk about in order to mm-hmm. us to inspire other people to see the step that you took to get to where you are right now and be able to, to say, okay, I can do that and I can get to this milestone and say, Ola, you've done well, but there's still more to do. So that's where I'm trying to get mm-hmm. milestones that you got, which is massive in the sense that you were able to have a lot of your business in a high capex industry, very competitive and you're able to do that. So let's move on to how you got into investments. I've seen a lot of your write-ups about investment in Nigeria, and you have some opinions about, about that. First of all, what sort of business interests you when you are looking at investing? And what do you want to get out of this, apart from the money and the returns? What are your main motivations behind investing? I think that it's really important for Nigeria and for sub-Saharan African businesses to grow some of our key problems, high unemployment, low government revenue and poverty, and even some of the socioeconomic issues around ethnicity, around religion, for instance, a lot of the sort of low-level civil conflicts that we have are all to do with resources. Our revenue from oil and gas is, at best, $6 billion. $6 billion cannot take care of 180 million people. So we need to grow our revenue, and the only way to grow our revenue is through entrepreneurializing the country. So as much as I can be part of that movement and help people become better, successful, and very importantly, profitable entrepreneurs, the better I'll feel and the more fulfilled that I'll feel. So that's your motivation? Yeah. Um, so what sort of business interests you when you started going into this? Businesses, number one, that make some kind of impact. But two, businesses run by great people, people that are responsible, people that are thinking, conscious people, are conscious of their environments, um, prudent. I like prudent people. I like frugal people because I'm a very frugal entrepreneur myself. 
and of course businesses that make money. Yeah, so you alluded to that in terms of profit. So I was talking about the fact that there are some businesses that need to go really fast and in the first few years, because of the scale at which they're going, they might not necessarily focus on profit, mm. in traditional sense of profit, mm-hmm. or uh, maybe they want to get big market share or they really want to acquire lots of users in order to, for them to be able to then make a profit out of it and a good example of that uh, maybe f- maybe Facebook started making money a- a- early on or maybe Twitter and some other businesses Twitter is a loss making business I wouldn't even invest in it yeah, so I, I, Twitter we, lost a billion like uh, Twitter has been losing billions of dollars every year so acquiring a lot of users for me personally is not my philosophy I think that business especially in Africa needs to be sustainable first of all so the value of the nigerian stock exchange right now is about what like 15 billion dollars maybe 20 the value of this the value of the johannesburg stock exchange is 900 billion dollars there's a lot less capital available uber raised more capital than the whole of the nigerian tech industry so i think using the silicon valley mindset to address issues with the Ajegule budget is not really going to work. And I think that a lot of tech entrepreneurs in Nigeria really need to understand that it's a lot more difficult to raise large amounts of capital into African businesses. And just because you can go to Silicon Valley and you can like see what they're doing doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to work in Lagos. I think that we're still learning actually how tech businesses grow in Nigeria and sort of what the nuances are going to be, what the differences are going to be in terms of how we're going to grow. But I think a much better comparison is probably India, where the companies don't attract as much capital as the Silicon Valley companies do but they've been able to find a lot more sustainable growth models and they've been able to grow with significantly less capital and when we're able to do that start businesses that are perhaps more frugal more thoughtful and more conscious of the capital restraints that we have here because we need those success stories to be able to attract more capital i think that we'll have like a much healthier tech ecosystem in Nigeria and also this role of what's the role of aid in business what's the role of sort of development money and patient capital I think that those are all very very good things but your entire business model can't be based around grants at some point it needs to be sustainable and I think that there's a lot of businesses built you know to 30 40 50 100 staff that are still completely grant dependent there has to be some routes to profitability as well. So I think we might have slightly differing um, opinions around profit, but I think one thing that we can agree on is there needs to be a route to profits at some point yeah, in time. What makes a business business is profit, by the way. So I think we agree on that. But there are two debate streams there. So there's one debate about uh, some businesses will need to be able to grow fast and they will need a lot of capital and they will need to be able to... A good example that you mentioned is Uber, for example. Actually, Uber is not profitable now, but they needed to raise that, that kind of money. If Uber just concentrated on being profitable, they won't have that kind of scale that they had and have that kind of market share that they've got. So there's some businesses, especially tech-enabled businesses, not all... So where, where the challenge is to be able to know the difference between those kind of business and businesses that actually you need to focus on profit as early as possible. You need to figure out your business model and make profit quickly in order for you to be sustainable. However, though, even those businesses that don't necessarily have to focus on profit initially, they still need to have path to profitability. The business model has to make sense, right? And this is where a lot of people don't get it. It has to be because business is about buying sheep 
and selling high, right? So buying, buying, buy, buy low, sell high. So if your business model doesn't make sense, no matter how big you are, if you're buying stuff for a billion naira, uh, if you buy something for one naira and you sell it for 90 kobo, even if you spend a billion naira, you're going to be losing money. So that is the thing. So I think you mentioned something about the African mindset, which I totally, totally agree that we cannot copy and paste business model from um, Silicon Valley into Africa because the problems are totally different and we don't have access to the money that they've got. However, there is this bit, I don't have the answer to it, that how do we think big beyond the constraint of our capital, beyond the constraint of, how do we, how do we solve bigger problems like going to the monk? So how do we, I mean that metaphorically, how do we solve bigger problems like, like Elon Musk is thinking of going to the monk, which is a massive business that doesn't look real, but it's just solving a great problem. How do we think beyond our immediate agricultural problem? So that's the thing. I don't have the answer to it. I'm just, it's just something I, I think I spend a lot of time thinking around. Well, why do we have to? Dangote is not solving Ajegule. Dangote is solving Ajegule problems. Chivite is solving Ajegule problems. Indomie is solving Ajegule problems. And they're multi-billionaires. And the people that are solving the Wi-Fi-enabled juice-making machines in Ikeja, they're not making any money. Businesses are supposed to make money. So solve the problems that make money. The people that are solving Ajegule problems are the billionaires. Yep, it's true. Cement, it's so, sorry, re- salt, re- problem. Yep. noodles, pasta rice juice you see the things that they're doing Mm -hmm. you've got to have what your environment needs not what you think that they need they don't need a wi-fi enabled juicing machine in unicha it's not going to scale because they just don't need that that's not what the people need right now so in our environment business is about solving problems in that environment and not transplanting first world problems into our environment the people that make a lot of money are the people that actually understand what the Nigerian market, the average Nigerian needs, not wants, needs, people's market needs, because we're still on the level of needs. A lot of, majority of the Nigerian population, actually, they're not on the level of wants. You know, in Maslow's hierarchy, it's a hierarchy of needs. And most Nigerians are still on those very low levels of food, security, clothing, and the ease of getting those things. Banking. Mm -hmm. I mean, Look at the number of unbanked people in Nigeria. Like practically 60% of the population of Nigeria is unbanked. They still don't have access to a bank account. You know, these are things that are basic in any first world country. So those are the kind of problems that we're solving. And, you know, that's why we've seen this like fintech explosion in Nigeria. And I think that that's a good thing because before you can start giving people Wi-Fi enabled juices, they need to be able to at least get... A bank account. Is that be- a real business for Wi-Fi enabled? It's, 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 it's a it's a silicon it's a Silicon Valley business that didn't do so Gisiria, well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you on that, but I still have that knowledge about how do we think beyond all of this. So I agree. The person that solved the biggest problem, uh, we make the most money. However, though, there is still that bit of thinking beyond what people need to what they want or what they will likely want. And I don't think there is a lot of money for that for African entrepreneurs to do. I agree with that. It's this Maslow, Iraqi, that we need to solve our need. But I think there's some entrepreneurs that still need to be thinking beyond the box. So, for example, if you have surveyed people 10 years ago that grew you in the Facebook, most people in Africa would have said, no, but then I don't want to be out my social network. But now everybody's using Facebook because somebody was able to think beyond that. So I think it's a bit of that, but I don't have access to it. So, mm-hmm. And I do argue a lot with entrepreneurs that are trying to solve problems that are not real, that are trying to do some things that 
it's just copy and paste from the West. And I said, you need to focus on some things now. But I hold myself back sometimes and I say, because as an investor myself, you don't know. We think we know what the entrepreneurs that we win. We don't know. Some entrepreneurs come with some ideas that look unreal like yours when you are speaking to those people because mm-hmm. you're using your own past knowledge. And you don't know that person might pull it off. It might change our world. It might change the way we do business. It might change the way we live. It might change our future. But we cannot connect to him now because we don't know that this guy's is recreating everything. It's changing everything. Even we think we have a need now, but this guy's doing something that... Absolutely. And in Silicon Valley, where there are venture capital firms of like $5 billion, if I had that kind of money to spend, then I'll be investing in everybody. <laughs> that guy downstairs, I'll invest in him. Like, just take $100 million, see what you can do. But it's my money. I'm going to invest in things that are likely to bring that money back because the reason why I'm investing is I won't see that money again. So yeah, some guy might tell me, you know what, I'm going to build this spaceship out of grass from the, you know, Taraba Savannah and it's going to go to the moon. It's a possibility, but it's not where I'm going to put my money. I'm going to put my money where I feel that, okay, this is has an addressable market, solid business model, solid guy. This guy is not going to steal my money. This guy is not going to take my money to the nightclub and go and drink it. He's a responsible person. I'm going to see it. Like, there's a high likelihood that this guy is smart enough and the business model is smart enough to bring my money back. Would you have invested in you? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Why? (laughs) You're telling me you're a doctor. You're how old? You've not really done any business before. Well, it was not a good investment at that stage. And you were able to pull it off. Yeah, but as an investor, I invest because I want the highest chances of winning. So, There's yes, there might be one-offs. Right now, with the limited capital that I have, I'm not willing to do one-offs. I'm willing to do things that are at least slightly sure. You understand? But if, what's his name now? Mark, uh, what, what's his name, Mark Andreessen? Uh, Mark, Mark Andreessen of uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Uh-huh. Or Ben Horowitz decide, okay, Ola, you know, I like this interview that you did with Dutton. I'm going to give you $20 billion to invest in Nigerian entrepreneurs. I hear that I can start doing all the moon shoots that I want to do. I can be less less conservative, but now I'm taking out of the profit that I hustled to make. And I want to make more profit. So I'm investing in people that are the most likely to win. And that's my challenge with the African investment community in the sense that a lot of people are simply are simply with their own money and they're very conservative which is fine and i think we need lots of institutional money to come in which are more risky because risky capital grew the silicon valley as we know it risky capital is the one behind microsoft apple facebook google all the top companies in the world that we know now that is shaping everything we do amazon they were funded not by conservative capital like you and i from our own sweat they were funded by risky capital who are happy to invest and take a risk and knowing that it might not work. And I think we need that. That's a big debate around that. We need that kind of money. Of course we need that kind of money, but we don't have it. Don't mm-hmm. forget that our class captain, Aluko, is only making... <laughs> Our GTB is only turning over $1.5 billion a year. So the, the largest, the largest in businesses as well. He, he's in, not in making fund. the same kind of money as Microsoft. Even our class captain, Aliko Dagote, is not making Microsoft money. He's not making uh, Google money. He's not making Uber money. He's not making Facebook money. We are still very small. And I think that we don't understand the level of our smallness. GTB, our biggest bank, turns over $1.5 billion at the most. So $1.5 billion. South Africa's biggest bank is turning over almost $20 billion. America's biggest bank is turning over $100 billion. 
So we are far, far behind. We should not compare ourselves to those countries. They are not our mates. You know, there's this acronym MINTS, where like Nigeria is part of it. It's Mexico, Indonesia, Nigeria, Turkey, MINT, right? The MINT countries. And they say Nigeria is part of them. Nigeria is a small N in that MINT. Those, oh, yeah, even, those country, even those countries are not our mates. So we need to understand that, you know, we're constrained by capital because we're not as productive as those economies yet. We still have a long way to go. We still have a long way to grow. If any of those big Silicon investors, Silicon Valley investors want to bring their money, happy to accept them. But the likelihood is that they will not. Oh, they do this sometimes. So they're, so, so, I want to see if they, if they are coming, are... then I want to see billions, not those crumbs that they are bringing. It's not going to help a country of 180 million people investing in only Andela. The likelihood is in the next few years, they're not going to bring that kind of money that we need to grow an entire ecosystem. Giving one-off examples, it's not, we're going to have to do this ourselves. I mean, we kind of like to rely on, okay, maybe Americans will come or these people will come, Chinese will come. But let's assume Worst case scenario, we're going to have to do this ourselves, like every other country in the world has done. Yeah, how are we going to do it? People like you to be coming out and be investing. If we're going to have to do this on our own, America is not going to help. These people are not going to help. How are we going to do it? And that's my mindset, zero sum mindset. If Ben Horowitz wants to come tomorrow, I'm open to it. But if he doesn't come, we still need to grow. But we still need to do more risky capital as well, rather than conservative capital investment, right? Uh, It can come from somebody else now. (laughs) Right. Let's move on to... This is interesting because I can see you're passionate about this investment and I see that in your writings as well. Let's talk about the future. What do you think? There's been a lot of growth and noise. Noise and growth, and they're two different things, uh, in the Nigerian tech ecosystem. Uh, And there's a lot of thinking around the fact that, and and I subscribe to thinking that the future of businesses everywhere is going to be tech, tech enabled. Everything's going to be tech enabled. Mm. And what we're seeing now, uh, the, the growth of tech enabled businesses or tech startup is going to be the norm as we go, go ahead in the next 20 years. What has been your view around it in terms of the kind of talents that are coming on board, in terms of businesses that are coming and probably the money as well? Um, in terms of the talent, I think we've developed like really, really cool, talented developers in Nigeria. And that's something that we can actually be really, really proud of. I think in terms of the executive ecosystem, so the non-technical people, the salespeople, the HR experts, I think we still have a long way to go. We don't really have too many superstar execs. And that's a problem because to grow an ecosystem, you don't just need the developers, you need the people that can do the business. And that, so you need the hustlers and we don't have enough of those so that's something that we definitely need to work on in terms of the talent. In terms of the future of tech, obviously, I think that this is actually a prime opportunity for us not to carry last. So I think that because we have this great community of developers, if we can complement that with people that know how to do business, then we kind of might be able to like hack our way and cheat our way into the future without people, without the Americans and the Chinese noticing too much. We might be ahead before, you know, this might be our last chance for Africa. Because if you've noticed for every, you know, for the past few decades, right, Africa has always lagged like, you know, 50 to 100 years behind. And tech has given us the opportunity to kind of quickly move forward and quickly run ahead. So we, I think that we're at that time, really at that tipping point where, you know, we might be able to pull a fast one on the world. Yeah, but we just... <laughs> we have access to the same technology yes, that everybody absolutely. So we might be able to do something fast, something sharp right now, but it just depends on people, which is probably, you know, human capital, which is even more important than financial capital for me. And then how we are able to mobilize money 
also to be able to invest in these businesses. But more importantly is the human capital, how we are able to mobilize our own mindsets as well. Um, from that mindset of sort of a dependency mindset to a more independent mindset where we believe that we can do things for ourselves. Like I said, I'm not waiting for anybody to come. I'm investing, I'm opening my checkbook every day and looking for businesses. I'm not waiting for any Americans to come. If they come, fine. If they don't come, I will still grow. And how many businesses have you been involved in in terms of investing at the moment? Seven now in our portfolio. From fintech to media to software to financial inclusion type businesses. So about seven in our portfolio. Some through Green Tree, some personally. You do some personal so, so personally, I'm interested in female entrepreneurs. So I invest in women's enterprises. And for that, I think that my money can be a bit more risky because I feel that women face substantial barriers when it comes to raising funding and raising finance and starting businesses. Um, and I believe that they face different barriers and higher barriers than men. And then through Green Tree, we have quite a few businesses in different spaces, mostly tech. And what's your ticket size, majorly? Um, it depends. It can be anything from a hundred thousand dollars to five hundred, even up to a million. From from the green tree and personal yeah. as well. So those fintech, can you mention the businesses that you invested? I, I think the only word that you'd have heard of is probably Paystack. Okay, so you were part of the Paystack. Yeah. Was that a, is that through green tree or personal? Free free green tree. Right. So was that the second round or the initial? The initial. Any any stage round, which is a fantastic business, by the way. We're going to go to the end of this podcast, but I'll be asking you some fire-round questions. Okay. You're ready for that? Yes. What is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Biggest pain point? I think, again, it's I'm sort of controlling myself, managing myself. In order for the business to get better, I think the leadership has to get better. So I always hold myself responsible And being able to manage my time, being able to get smarter faster, being able to train people, being able to lead, being able to inspire better. I think that that's my biggest pain point. And I know that when I get better, the business gets better. What is your number one growth metric? One thing that you look at in your business that indicates that you're growing? Ooh, money. Is that (laughs) profits? Profits. Profits. So I've been talking about it since uh, the beginning. It is profits. No other. I don't have any fancy growth metrics. It's old school conservative profits. Okay. Which book are you reading at the moment? I read quite a few actually. I'm like, because I have books on my phone. So I downloaded an app called Audible. So it has like loads of ebooks that I can listen to when I'm driving and stuff. But the most interesting out of the ones that I'm listening to right now is <laughs> it's a really odd book. It's Donald Trump's Never Give Up. And like looking at what's going on in America, I've actually gone back to all of his books and sort of studied his personality, all his business advice, the way that he's built his businesses and everything. And I can see everything sort of playing out in terms of his attitude, exactly like he said in his books like 25 years ago. And a lot of the political decisions that he's making now if you had listened to his books, then you'd understand the background behind them. So I think it's fascinating that he's everything that he said in those books is sort of coming to fruition. So yeah, very, very interesting. And I think that's why it's good to like document because he, he has documented everything, all of his opinions, even before he ever went. If people had read his books, they would have understood like well, his mindset. Yeah. I have a strong view uh, against Donald Trump. So. It's not It's not against or for, it's just he has documented everything. And if you guys had 
read his listen to his books and you'd understand you get a deep understanding of him yeah. which business is getting you excited at the moment apart from your own business i'm a bankophile i don't know if that's the word but like i love bank so a sort of business bankophile bankophile you know when you so I think that I'm I'm always interested in financial businesses and the traditional banks and the fintechs the and the space in between the traditional banks and the fintechs that's what's getting me most excited at the moment Is there any particular business in that space Zenith and GT That old businesses. Yeah, but I think that they're undergoing exciting transformations. I mean, um GT just dropped the best half year ever seen in Nigerian banking in the history of the Nigerian banking industry. So I think GT is probably the most exciting business for me right now. Interesting. Interesting. And GT actually changed the game when they came to the scene in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that they kept the innovation going. Mm-hmm. I would have thought that Access Bank has got something going in terms of technology, but maybe the scale is still very small compared to GT. But it's great talking to you. Thank I you. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed this show as well. I did. Thank you. I look forward to having you on the show to talk about more investing and have some debate around that. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming to Bid in the Future. All right. Bye-bye. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future, and you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud or wherever you download podcast and subscribe. You can also go to our website thestarter.com. That is T H E S T A R T A and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.